you are sick of oppressive religious systems but are not willing to let go of faith altogether, this podcast is for you. In this show, we hear from inspirational people tackling real issues of faith that actually matter in this world. Welcome to Jesus Never Ran. The church is wrong to argue that the Bible justifies any sort of discrimination, oppression, marginalization of those who are not straight. Well, the reason why you ain't got no black folks in your congregation is because we don't show up to places where we're not welcome, and we know we're not welcome based off the conversations you demand that we don't have because of the questions you insist on us not asking because of the answers you don't want to live. And the idea that the best being in the universe can't come up with a better solution to the problems of the universe than to torture people forever, eternally. You just start thinking, if that's as good as God is, this is a pretty depressing universe. Hey, before we get going, a couple of words from our sponsors, Rise Nutrition. You can find them at Rise Menominee on Facebook. That's Rise with a Z. And they're all about a healthier, happier life. So let their wellness coaches give you the personal support to help you achieve your wellness goals. After all, that is their mission. And here's the thing, just for Jesus Never Ran listeners, if you go to their Facebook page, you can message them and get a free wellness profile. That's a 20-minute phone conversation, absolutely free for Jesus Never Ran listeners. So check them out today. Also, Infinity Beverages at www.infinitybeverages.com. They will deliver anything you need right to your door. And don't forget that Thursday is buy one, get one for club members if you're in the Eau Claire, Wisconsin area. That's Infinity Beverages at www.infinitybeverages.com. All right, friends, well, we are just a couple of weeks away from a very important election, and I don't think we would be doing anybody justice by just ignoring it, because that's not really what we do here at Jesus Never End, but we're going to look at it through a different lens, because I think that is vital, and there's quite literally no one better to help us with this conversation than Shane Claiborne. So we're going to have Shane on the show this week and next week. If you don't know who Shane is, he is the author of The Irresistible Revolution. He wrote Red Letter Revolution. He likes to write books about revolution. He wrote a book called Executing Grace, which is talking about the death penalty. And then he wrote a book called Beating Guns, which discusses violence and guns on the streets in America. I have read every single one of his books. Huge believer in what he stands for and what he does. So let me introduce you to none other than Shane Claiborne. Well, thanks first of all for having me on your podcast. I'm a Tennessee boy. I grew up down in the Bible Belt and the foothills of the Smoky Mountains and you know, fell in love with Jesus there. I grew up in the I grew up in the Methodist part of the church and caught the fire of the Spirit. Got a little Pentecostal. Got rebaptized in a Pentecostal church, you know, and uh, and and then you know I, I just started seeing some of the things that you and I think so many other folks have noticed in the contradictions, I guess you might say, and. <laughs> In, in the uh, the church and you know I, I mean for me that started I was kind of discipled into Christianity and into right-wing politics and I helped organize the Bush quail campaign I met Dan quail incidentally and you know I, I talked a lot about what it meant to be pro-life 
But really, I only thought about that in terms of the issue of abortion. And uh, that's why, you know, these days I've been trying to encourage us to embrace a more robust ethic of life, you know, that's not just pro-birth or anti-abortion, but that really cares about life from womb to tomb and sees issues like gun violence and the death penalty and the environment and Black Lives Matter, all as, you know, core convictions that are about life being created in the image of God. So anyway, I ended up going to Philadelphia to go to school. I went to Eastern University. That's where I became friends with my Uh, My buddy, Tony Campolo, who I do a lot of work with these days. But I studied sociology. I like how Karl Barthes, uh, you know, one of the great thinkers of the church, he said, we got to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to read the newspaper in the other so that our faith does not become just a ticket into heaven and a, a license to ignore the world that we live in. But we really need to, you know, Think about what it means, as Jesus said, to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So we're, we're not just preparing people to die, but we're, you know, inviting people to live differently. Uh, so I, I did that, studied sociology and studied the Bible. Uh, and then, you know, it was exactly 25 years ago. We just had an event commemorating this, but that uh, homeless mothers and children in Philadelphia moved into an abandoned Catholic church building. This is in 1995. And boy, I don't know, you know, how much they thought strategically about it, but it just sparked a massive movement in Philadelphia because it raised all these questions about where is the church? You know, there's all these abandoned church buildings. In many ways, the church kind of abandoned North Philadelphia, especially, you know, these Catholic church buildings were were scattered all over. So they moved into this. And, you know, there's a history of sanctuary, being able to seek refuge in the church as winter approached. These families were on the waiting list for housing and they expose the the craziness, you know, that there are more abandoned housing than there are homeless people. And yet, you know, there's a 10-year waiting list for housing. So these things didn't add up. So anyway, that's that's what lit my fire. You know, I, it, I we started a student solidarity movement uh, as students at Eastern University. About 100 of us got involved in that. So a bunch of my friends were there, you know, last week when we reconvened, had this big reunion. And, you know, but it was in there. I mean, ironically, in this kind of abandoned cathedral that our fresh vision for the church emerged and you know we, we sometimes say we, we we caught a vision for church in the ruins of the church you know out of the compost of christendom new life can come and uh so we started the simple way you know a couple years after that we thought it might be a good idea to graduate from college for some of us and whatnot you know so but we you know we were also inspired by the early church in the book of acts where in the new testament it talks about this beautiful community of christians that shared everything in common and none of them claimed that their possessions were their own. They shared everything they had. The, you know, the gospel was lived out of dinner tables and living rooms. It's sort of this house church movement, uh, not the mega church, but the micro church. You know, let's get it into the neighborhood. And so we we pulled our money together and bought a, a row house in North Philly. And now, you know, for the last 20 years, we've been building a village. Uh, we've got community gardens and murals and, you know, a bunch of folks that all live within walking distance to each other that are trying to, you know, live out that spirit of the early church. And um, yeah, man, so that's, been, that's what I've been up to. And I'll, I'll, I'll just have to stay, say, you know, I'm, I'm now also have a 
a school bus that's been turned into a solar-powered tiny house. And so Katie and I are right now down in North Carolina. We've been traveling around, especially with the madness of this election, doing what we can to engage some of these issues that I think really matter. And, uh, and we also have a blacksmithing forge. So we've been inviting people to disarm, you know, and to, if they want to donate guns, we turn them into garden tools. Yes, you heard that correctly. And of course, we're going to talk more about that as we move forward today. One of the most polarizing issues in any election is the pro-life versus pro-choice debate. And those are just terms that are put on it that I think are wildly simplistic. I guess I'll say, but they definitely have a lot to do when it comes to how Christians are deciding to vote. And the reality is, is often, I think, and I'm not going to speak for everybody out there, but from the conversations I've heard and the posts I've seen, it seems to me that this more than any other singular issue is the reason that people choose, at least Christians, often choose to vote the way that they do. We want to be for life, right? That every human being is made in the image of God. And yet I think the irony is that in the United States, you can uh, be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life as long as you, you, you know, got the issue of abortion right. And, and that, that, I think, is what began to crack for me. And, and I still, I, I actually do care deeply about abortion and reducing abortion. I think providing health care to folks is a good start for some of that. We need a better conversation around abortion. But what I also saw is that on some of these other life issues, Christians weren't vocal at all. In fact, we, evangelical Christians in particular, have not been the champions of life. We've been the obstacles of life when it comes to the death penalty and gun violence. The, the Bible Belt is the death belt when it comes to executions in our country. Uh, almost 90% of the executions are happening in the Bible Belt. Uh, these are also the states that held on to slavery the longest. Um, so there's kind of this... You know, mixing of our history, but also when it comes to our theology, there's a lot of holes in it, right? And when it comes to guns, white evangelicals are the biggest gun-owning demographic in America. We own guns. Christians own guns at a higher rate than the general population. So these things begin to, you know, baffle me. And I grew up with guns, you know, and and um, and you know, the more I've studied this, the, the more I've seen that, you know gun owners are not the problem as much as the gun profiteers and the gun extremists, which we see expressed in, you know, the National Rifle Association, other kind of groups. But anyway, you know, as I look at my faith, when we use the language of idolatry, uh, it, it's not inaccurate, right? It's not hyperbole uh, to say that guns have become idols, that we kind of put this reverence and God-like power into them. And we put our trust, our self-determination, all these things that we're supposed to put in God, we put in a gun. And, and I think when I look at Jesus in particular, it becomes even more troubling because here's the Prince of Peace, right? Who calls us to love our enemies, who even as he's being killed violently, pleads for forgiveness for those who are killing him. That's the one that we follow, the one who said, blessed are the merciful, right? And so the gun and the cross give us two very different versions of power. And one of them says, I'm willing to die. And the other says, I'm willing to kill. Between 
Christ's Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you know, uh, that we're to turn the other cheek in, in, in the NRA's message of stand your ground, there becomes a point where you just can't reconcile these. You can't hold a cross in one hand and a gun in the other um, in that sense. So I, uh, you know, be, wrote beating guns and we began to literally, you know, inspired by the prophets, Mike and Isaiah to beat guns into plows as a, a sort of a visual enactment of that. Um, but I mean, all of this comes out of my, my passion for life, the audacity, I guess, of our theology to say that the God who created life cares about it. You know, it's not just the small guns. I mean, we, I mean, it does, once you start looking at this, you see what a problem it really is, that we've got more guns than people in the U.S. We've got five times more gun dealers than McDonald's restaurants. Stunning, right? That we've got about 5% of the world's population but we have almost half of the world's guns. I mean, we, we really do have a problem. And we've got, you know, so many disproportionately like amount of gun deaths uh, because where you have more guns, you have more suicide, you have more gun deaths. So I, I care about protecting life. And right now we're losing over 100 lives a day. In, in my lifetime, we have had more deaths domestically to guns than in all of the wars in U.S. history. I think a lot of people are looking in on Christianity and they're seeing so many different versions of it. So a part of what really you know, is at stake at all of this too is, is people's lives, but also the integrity uh, and the credibility of the gospel that we proclaim. So when it comes to nuclear bombs, when it comes to uh, AR-15s and military-style rifles that are still legal on our streets, when it comes to the electric chair, which is still used in Tennessee, and the apparatus of, of executing people, there's nothing Christ-like about these things. And so, you know, when we've camouflaged our Christianity to justify the very things that I think Jesus denounced and came to heal the world of, you know, there's something that's become sick in our, our, own, our own spirituality. In Shane's book, Red Letter Revolution, he challenges Christ followers to actually do what the Bible talks about. And that's a big part of what he stands for. When it comes to the issue of guns, that's exactly what he is doing. Yeah, so it, it's been almost 10 years since we became really compelled by this biblical vision of beating swords into plows. And, and it's in both Micah and, and Isaiah in, in the Bible, there, this vision. But it's interesting because it ends by saying, nation will not rise up against nation. People will learn violence no more. It casts a vision of a world where people can live without fear, right? But what's interesting is that vision begins not with the politicians, but with the people. It's, it's that the change comes not from the top down, but from the bottom up, just like water boils, right? And so that vision is of a world that has grown so tired of violence that people began to transform the tools of death for them, swords and plows, you know, um, into plows. But for us, you know, we started thinking, well, we don't have a ton of spears and swords, but we got a whole lot of guns. So we invited people to donate them. And our first donated gun was an AK-47. And, and it just one more sign that some of these guns that are just 
designed to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And it's what they get used for. I have no place on our streets and, and overwhelmingly ordinary citizens, gun owners even, um, believe that we need some, some changes. So we took that AK-47, we created a shovel and a rake out of it. And we've been doing it ever since. So um, all over this country, we've got what we call a disarming network. There are community centers and churches and mosques and synagogues where people can donate guns and they'll immediately be disarmed. They'll be made inoperable. And we chop them. You know, sometimes I call them chop saw churches. Uh, but, they, you know, we train people on how to do that. We've got a network of blacksmiths all over the country that are specifically skilled in how to make these garden tools out of um, the guns, you know. And so our network is called Raw Tools, which is war flipped backwards. Now, just that is incredible. Just that whole concept to me is mind-blowing and beautiful and wonderful and Christ-like. But when they have these events, when they're collecting guns, when they're turning them into tools, there's inevitably these stories that start to come out. And there's inevitably this healing that happens as the guns are being transformed into tools. When we're at the forge, we, we sometimes describe that fire as like the fire of the Holy Spirit, you know, that, that it softens hearts. It begins to make that kind of cold, dark metal malleable to where it can be moved and changed. And the same thing happens to a lot of hearts there. I, I remember one of the first women that had lost her child. We always invite those who have been impacted to take the hammer and she's beating on this gun. And she says, this is for my boy. And I realized that what we're doing, it, it has power. It's holy. You know, and I, I use that word sacrament, sort of a church word, you know, for the, the communion. That There is a holy mystery. That's what it means, you know, that about what we're doing. We, we've had uh, Sharon Risher, who lost her mom in the Mother Emanuel church shooting in South Carolina, right? Her mom, actually, several of her family members and friends were killed in that shooting, including her mom. And as she beat on the gun, she named all nine of the Emmanuel nine who were killed. And she said afterwards to me, she said, everything I wanted to do to Dylan Roof, I did to that gun. And she has become, uh, I mean, an incredible force for redemption and healing. She stands against the death penalty. Um, and she believes that more violence isn't going to heal our violence. You know, like killing, executing Dylan Roof is not going to heal the wounds of what he did uh, any more than more guns are going to heal our gun problem, right? So that that um, is the power. And one other uh, a person I just will never forget, he counted 18 times as he was beating on the gun. And afterwards, he kind of, you know, retreated off a little bit. We had a chance to talk to him because he was very emotional. And, and he said, I killed someone who was 18 years old. And so uh, I've been praying that, you know, that, that God would heal me um, and the victim's family and, you know, all those involved. So it's hard to put words to the power of what happens, but that's exactly what we felt like we needed. It's not just more stale debates and rhetoric and gun control and the Second Amendment. I mean, I go into all that stuff in our book, but like we've got to move people in their hearts. We've got to 
center those who have been traumatized by gun violence and that's what we did you know we did a 40 city tour all over the country with the forge and every night melted a gun into a garden tool and donated it to those communities around the country there are folks who say that you know gun violence is not a gun problem it's a heart problem and what i think on a lot of these things is it's both right and god heals hearts and people change laws and policies and we need both such powerful stories and i always appreciate anyone who can put a name and a face with an issue or a policy etc because it really brings to light the importance of everything that we're talking about now staying on the idea of being pro-life shane wrote another book called executing grace and listen to this tagline how the death penalty killed jesus and why it's killing us So with the death penalty, I think it, it, it is a theological crisis, and it's also a barbaric policy. It's impossible to talk about the death penalty divorced from our racial history, right? That it is the residue of uh, slavery and racism and, and where lynchings were happening 100 years ago is precisely where executions are happening today. When we you know, moved from lynching to legal executions, state executions. Um, the the African American population was about ten percent uh, black folks in our in the U.S., but it was seventy five percent of executions, seventy five percent. And so you kind of fast forward seventy years, and black folks are about thirteen, twelve to thirteen percent of the uh, population is African American, but almost half of death row, over a third of the executions are African Americans. We, we sort of have this idea that we're killing the worst of the worst, but we're really killing the poorest of the poor and disproportionately people of color. What determines who gets executed is often not the atrocity of the crime, but it's, the, it's arbitrary things like the race of the victim. When the victim is white, overwhelmingly that means that the death penalty will be pursued. When the, de- when the, when the victim is African-American or a person of color, that's not so often the case. And so you kind of see all these discrepancies. You know, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of other pieces. Uh, but why I think it's a spiritual issue is because here's Jesus who challenges our culture of violence, I think, so consistently and in every way. Even the Old Testament theology, which I really go into deeply in my book, Executing Grace, but this idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which predated the scriptures. It was an ancient way of thinking about justice that did allow for retribution, for reciprocal harm. You could hurt someone as much as they hurt you, but it put a limit on it. Right? So if someone poked your eye out, you can't poke both of their eyes out. Someone chops your arm off, you can't go, you know, chop both their arms off, kill their mom and burn down their house. Like it was meant to like stop the spiral of violence, right? And it's where we, Lex Talionis is where we get the idea of retaliation from, right? So that's like one way of thinking about it. But then Jesus comes and says, you've heard it said, 
an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? And this, I love it. I think Jesus shines in this, you know, in so many ways, but in particular right now, as he's challenging that pattern of violence, you know, you've heard it said, Moses told you this, but I tell you this. And what Jesus is going to do, and, and this is where I'm going to get theology, I'm going to get preaching, brother. I'm going to get preaching on this is because I don't believe Jesus negated or abolished the law, but fulfilled it. So he says, you may have, you may have a right to hurt someone back, but that doesn't make it right. Right? We can do better than mirroring the evil done to us. So, you know, in reality, if someone chopped your arm off, Matt, we would think, you know, we can do better than chopping their arm off. Like, we don't need to do the same evil they did to us. We don't rape people who rape to show how wrong it is. But in the most extreme case of murder, we still kind of hold out this logic that we're going to kill people who, who kill to show how wrong it is to kill. And we end up literally uh, mirroring the, the, the exact evil. And what is the, on the death certificate itself, when someone's executed, the cause of death, the manner of death is homicide. We know it, where it is state-sanctioned murder. And even the state knows that, right? So I look at the early church and uh, Cyprian, you know, the, the great third century bishop, Carthage, he said, when a, an individual kills another person, we call it evil, but somehow we sanctify it when the state does it and we call it good. So I think we've got to say like killing is wrong, no matter whether it's done by a criminal or by a governor or uh, by a president. Right now we've got federal executions that have been reignited by the Trump administration. So I look at Jesus at the center of the Christian faith is an executed and risen Savior. I mean, literally Jesus absorbed all the violence of the world, of the sin uh, of us and of the state, and, and puts you know, all of that violence on display on the cross, not in order to celebrate it, but in order to subvert it with love, forgiveness, and an empty tomb. So I think that's why all of this is so important, is if we misunderstand and misinterpret the, ex the most famous execution in history, then we end up creating a violent theology that can actually justify, try to justify the very evil that I think Jesus came to heal the world of. And that's why the, it, the, these conversations, they tend for me, they are about the death penalty, but they are about more than the death penalty, right? They're also about how we understand why Jesus died. And do we need more blood? Right? Do we believe in a God uh, that, that, that declares mercy triumphs over judgment? Do we believe that even someone like Dylan Roof, who we know did something terrible, do we believe that, that God is powerful enough? to change someone's heart. And that's why I believe, you know, at the heart of the death penalty is this idea, is anybody beyond redemption? And uh, as you look at scripture, it's packed with people who did terrible things. Moses was a murderer. David, 
was an adulterer, a womanizer. He raped Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed. Saul of Tarsus was a religious extremist that terrorized the early church. And so if we believe murderers are beyond redemption, we could rip out half the Bible. The Bible would be a lot shorter without grace. But that amazing grace is, is really at the center of our faith that Jesus came not for the healthy but for the sick that you know he said I didn't come for the righteous but for the sinners so I'm I'm getting to preaching but I I just think that's why these are not just political issues they are deeply theological and they have massive implications do yourself a favor and go out and purchase Executing Grace and Beating Guns by Shane Claiborne I will have the direct links in the show notes of this episode such good information, so much to digest and to chew on as we're considering these specific issues. Now, we're not done yet because next week, Shane will be with us again to talk specifically about the election. We'll be one week out when that one airs. So we're going to talk directly about the election. For more information on Shane Claiborne, make sure you check out his website at shaneclaiborne.com. To support this show, of course, you can subscribe to it, give it a five-star rating, and write a review. And until next time, keep walking.